Well, good evening, everyone, and thank you for joining us tonight. Um, I'm Tim Hitchens, if you don't know, I'm the president of Wolfson College, um, and I'm delighted to welcome you all to this second lecture on the changing face of diplomacy in the 21st century. Our first speaker last term was the Japanese ambassador Koji Tsuruoka, and he described the case for the Asia-Pacific region with its economic dynamism and the competing tensions between the US, China, Japan, and many others should be regarded as one of the key arenas for diplomacy this century. But there are other areas which could fairly be argued to be significant centers for the way things will be different this century. And Sub-Saharan Africa is one of them. I should declare an interest here. I spent several years working with African colleagues as the rather grandly titled Africa Director in the British Foreign Office. But I do personally and passionately believe that the traditional image of Africa as war and famine has been vastly overworked. And that there are also emerging patterns of economic growth and a real striving for political and economic independence. The Organization for African Unity, established in 1963 in the heady days of early political independence for many African countries, set its sights very high, but too often its work overshot its capacity. When it was replaced in 2002 by the African Union, that reflected a greater realism, a greater economic realism, but no less fervent a belief in Africa's future and questions of governance. The African Union is currently facing its latest test, how to respond to the announced results of the presidential election in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Among the continent's most remarkable transformations has been that in Rwanda. A poor, ill-known mountain country, landlocked, subject to interminable internal disputes, suddenly became widely known following the events of the 6th of April 1994, when President Habyarimana's plane was shot down near Kigali Airport, killing him. The shooting down of that plane served as the catalyst for the Rwandan genocide, which began within a few hours. And over the course of approximately 100 days, around 800,000 Tutsi and politically moderate Hutu were killed. This led to one of the greatest crises for the United Nations, and in time to the emergence of a new politics in Rwanda led by President Paul Kagame. I would point to three striking features of modern Rwanda. First, the dramatic improvements in the classic development indicators, including education, health, and women's participation. Second, a focus on breaking free from the old donor-recipient relationships, which have characterized so much of post-independent African relationships with the rest of the world. And finally, questions of which kind of governance is required to make these major changes. Can that all be achieved in ways which, for example, Western governments would feel comfortable with? 
So if we're looking for examples of new kinds of diplomacy in government, Rwanda is an excellent example of how things can be done differently. And if we are looking for new ways in which Africa does business and diplomacy and breaks moulds, this is it. I'm delighted to welcome High Commissioner Yamina Karatani. Yamina has been High Commissioner to London for three years now. And before that, she was at the helm of the tourism and conservation portfolios at the Rwanda Development Board, the government's agency mandated with fast-tracking economic development in the country. And before that, she was Rwandan High Commissioner to Kenya. Yamina has also been involved in the private sector. And she was also instrumental in the decision in London this year that Rwanda will host the next Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in Kigali in 2020. I'm glad we've met our destination, we've arrived where we wanted to be, <laughs> and the perfect time for me to invite the High Commissioner to take the stage. Yamina. Good evening. Good evening. Thank you, Sir Tim and Wolfson College for this kind invitation to address you tonight at this historical and leading academic institution which provides a great platform to discuss global and national issues playing a critical role in shaping strategic policy decisions benefiting our global village. I am pleased to add my voice to this important conversation on diplomacy in the 21st century, focusing on Africa. In putting my notes together, I thought to give this conversation the title, Reimagining Africa. But allow me to start with my country, Rwanda, a country many only heard of in 1994, when a million of our citizens was slaughtered in just a short 100 days as the world watched, some hoping it was a nightmare that will go away. Unfortunately, it was not. The dead were counted, buried, and Rwandans had to wake up to a new reality. The killings had stopped, but what was next? When we speak of the genocide against the Tutsi, we rightly focus on the million-plus lost lives, but the damage was much more profound. We had a stagnated economy, which had contracted by 50%, a 64% inflation rate, a 78% poverty rate, an overwhelming number of displaced persons, more than 140,000 genocide suspects in overcrowded prisons. The entire socioeconomic fabric was destroyed and the infrastructure was dilapidated. A complete restart was required, but we also had huge capacity gaps and uh, very weak institutional framework. In fact, 96% of our civil servants had no higher education. So the war was over, but we needed a recipe for peace. A series of developmental strategies were started with Vision 2020 that was implemented in three stages. The first stage was recovery from post-conflict. 
focusing on social sectors, poverty reduction, which reduced by 3%. The second stage was preparation for takeoff, high poverty reduction, which um, reached 12%, reduced inequality, and high growth, which reached 8.2%, uh, a strong contribution which um, helped us achieve Millennium Development Goals. A focus on rapid growth then followed as the third stage, and the growth reached 11.5%, focusing on fast poverty reduction, which has now reached um, 30% uh, of our population, which is still below the poverty line. Our focus now is closing the trade balance, focusing on higher exports and increasing private sector investment. As the saying goes, if you want to improve it, then measure it. If you cannot measure it, you cannot improve it. Rwandan's government set out to measure each one of the stages mentioned above, making necessary adjustments to ensure success using the Rwanda Governance Eight Pillars Scorecard. The pillars measured are rule of law, political and civil liberties, participation and inclusiveness, safety and security, investment in human and social development, control of corruption, transparency and accountability, quality and service delivery, economic and corporate governance. Each of the pillars would include key indicators which would then be further measured with an objective of pro pro proposing key recommendations to be, to be implemented. The, Im the implementation is carefully monitored with mid-reviews to adjust plans as needed. Rwanda's achievements to date were mainly driven by homegrown solutions and innovations drawn from the Rwandan culture. We looked inwards and adopted the kind of changes that our citizens would nat naturally embrace. We worked to achieve economic and social transformation using transformational governance, which focused on promoting Rwandan values and culture, promoting unity and reconciliation, contribution to contributing to peace and security in country and globally, fighting corruption, increasing tax collection and foreign direct investment. Today, Rwanda ranks as seventh most efficient government globally. We are 29th globally in the 2018 World Bank Doing Business Report, in fact emerging as a top reformer in the history of the World Bank Doing Business Reforms. Additionally, Rwandans see security organs as a source of public good. We have the highest representation of women in parliament in the world, 61%, and women constitute 50% of a fairly young cabinet. Our prime minister is 45 years old. We have graduated from a 90% dependence on foreign aid to about 16% today. The principle of self-reliance is one of our guiding values and the youth particularly is mentored to use education to become job creators and not job 
seekers. Distinguished ladies and gentlemen, it is on this point that I wish to introduce African aspirations for 2063 led by the Africa Union. The aspirations reflect the continent's desire for shared prosperity and well-being, for unity and integration, for a continent of free citizens and expanded horizons where the full potential of women and youth, boys and girls are realized and with freedom from fear, disease and want. These are the aspirations which will create the Africa we want. The president of Rwanda, President Paul Kagame, heads the Africa Unions, has headed the Africa Union during this past 12 months, and his focus has been to implement the mission set forth by the Africa Union, as well as leading reforms which would produce an institution fit for purpose, responding to the needs of Africans and indeed our development partners. One of the highlights of Rwanda's presidency of the Africa Union was the signing of the Africa Continental Free Trade Area, which envisions a single market expected to generate a combined GDP of more than 3.4 trillion US dollars and benefiting the 1.2 billion African population. Therefore, Africa's interest is to use diplomacy to ensure delivery of the Africa we want. Diplomacy in the 21st century has been greatly transformed by economic engagements and technology. With its 1.2 billion citizens, and over 60% of them below the age of 25, it is only logical that Africa capitalizes on its wealth, human, nat natural, and capital in order to create the sustainability required. But the challenges that Africa face are not for the continent to resolve alone. The West, particularly, given historical ties and current economic arrangements, whether through generalized systems of preferences or European partnership agreements, ought to take a sober look at issues hampering global economic prosperity and stability. Indeed, more often than not, trade deals, knowledge and financing are accompanied by protectionism when it comes to access to market for added value goods and for accessing, accessing high paying jobs. Distinguished ladies and gentlemen, if we take the subject of aid, for example, using Rwanda's case, Rwanda has benefited from aid post-1994, and we believe it serves the citizens well if it is efficiently delivered. But both donors and recipients should include in their planning that aid comes with an expiry date. The conversation needs to focus on sustaining development, which means a shift from aid to working together on a post-aid era, a transition period more likely to affect real change and benefit all stakeholders. Therefore, strategic discussions should include, in the case of Africa, how to translate mineral wealth 
and human capital into prosperity for Africans. According to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, Africa loses on average 63.4 billion US dollars through trade mispricing and other illicit financial flows every two years, which is more than foreign direct investment and foreign aid combined. Furthermore, 55% of it end up in developed countries. Therefore, how could a country blatantly hosting stolen funds amassed over decades label as fantastically corrupt the continent which is on the losing end of the deal? In effect, tackling global action against illicit financial flows would produce more impactful results than we could ever see with aid. Additionally, governments should adopt citizen-centered approaches to governance, allowing for the strengthening of the private sector, which would then attract foreign direct investment. To borrow the words of Dr. Donald Kaberuka at the launch of the LSE Oxford Commission on State Fragility, Growth and Development, which he co-chairs with the Right Honorable David Cameron. Escaping fragility is, by necessity, a slow, step-by-step, -step, and often imperfect process. International support will be needed, but the chances of success are higher if the country and its people are in the driver's seat. The first step is security, which requires a large degree of locally-led rebuilding of trust. Escaping fragility is not always about money. Top-down, donor-led approaches with unrealistic, tight timetables have not produced ending results. Early effort will be needed to revive the local private sector, which is often the lifeline for families and communities when the state can no longer assure its basic core functions. Confidence generated by domestic businesses is what will spur foreign investment, not vice versa. I would only add that when we discuss ending poverty, we must touch on the issues beyond a given nation's control, which perpetuate poverty as well. I often think of the fact that high-value minerals are in abundance on the continent of, on the continent of Africa, but when plans to establish refineries are considered, individuals in Geneva and London activate their lobbies to discourage Africans, often citing traceability of minerals, lack of expertise, and a host of other reasons why Africa should just be content with handing over gold, diamonds, and everything in between at a discount. I love tomatoes. And I'm always challenged by the fact that raw tomatoes can enter the EU duty-free, but not tomato sauce. And when you look at what Africa imports, it is everything fully processed, highest value good, limiting our chances to build our manufacturing industries. And so, even when governments are delivering tremendous progress, we must admit, admit that the global community must act with intent 
to support sustainable growth, the kind which reduces trade imbalances. Oftentimes, we find ourselves entangled into an unforgiving web of complex economic pacts, favoring those already having an economic advantage and punishing the ones hoping to improve their manufacturing industries and adding value to their export. And of course, Africa has to play its part, and it is doing just that, or trying to. Looking at institutional and, and financial reforms within the Africa Union, integration successes, and hopefully soon, a ratified Africa continental free trade area would greatly enhance movement of goods and services on the continent. As we stand, Africa is the sole remaining continent which trades more with the outside than with itself. Reversing that trend will bring sustainable development. Ladies and gentlemen, the shortest distance between Africa and Europe is, a, is only about 15 kilometers of ocean. On the thorny issue of migration, I would like to remind you that 90% of refugees remain on the Africa continent. Oftentimes, countries are left with no choice but to receive the refugees in respect of the UN Convention and on a humanitarian basis. Unfortunately, pledges made to the recipient countries often fail to materialize and nations end up struggling with ensuring security challenges as often seen in Kenya with Dadaab camp hosting more than a million Somali refugees within its borders. But let's focus on Europe. Europe has a, mig a migration problem, partly because it has failed to address the issues producing the refugee crisis. In the words of President Paul Kagame at the G20 summit last year, it would be a mistake to define the migration crisis as a humanitarian challenge to be addressed with aid alone. A more productive approach is partnership with mutual benefit for all involved. Indeed, Africa needs manufacturing and industrial partnerships, especially those that, in, that can incorporate the latest technology and focus on production in addition to training. I did mention the capacity building issues that we face in Africa. Africa needs to be part of the global supply chain, joining others in producing high-value products. There is a clear message coming from the Africa Union, which approaches the issue in a spirit of finding solutions which would serve both Europe and Africa. In a post-Brexit or not scenario, <laughs> the UK should be leading on this opportunity. Africa remains ready to engage and is interested in keeping its youth at home. Distinguished ladies and gentlemen, on the issue of climate change, Africa has also been active on the global scene in offering solutions that would protect our global village. My own country banned plastic bags in 2008, and Kigali is in the top five cleanest international cities, and we have adopted a green growth strategy. But when we look closer at issues affecting our planet, the biggest pollut polluters 
the, de the developed nations have, not done, have done too little to contribute to keeping global warming in check. We are, however, glad that the Kigali Amendment entered into force this January, an important step to avoid up to 0.4 degrees of global warming by the end of this century and protect the ozone layer by reducing emissions of greenhouse gases. Our collect collective task should be to create opportunities which would best respond to the current needs, also taking into account climate change challenges. There is tremendous innovation on the continent. The key challenge is how to harness a continent projected to add, on an annual basis, 29 million to the workforce every year. One of my favorite stories in conservation in Rwanda is how successful campaigns led to ex-poachers becoming tourist guides, turning their lives around and protecting our wildlife. Today, the mountain gorilla's population continues to rise, increased by 27%, and we have reintroduced lions and rhinos whose population is also growing, with uh, pro pro producing very healthy cubs. This, in turn, contributes to growing tourism receipts, and 15% of revenues is then redistributed to enhance the quality of life of populations living around the national parks. And only half-jokingly, one could also think of a way to capitalize on the genius of what is known as the 419 scam, the Nigerian scam, or mon money transfer fraud, and how that industry could be evaluated and turned around to strengthen cybersecurity. I always say that our global village can always make more money from a growing economy than we can steal from a dying economy. Let me end by emphasizing that uh, an efficient Africa Union is not only good for Africa, but equally good for this global village that we share. President Paul Kagame, who will continue chairing the reforms, uh, the reform team after handing over the presidency to Egypt next month, will remain focused on implementing this important value proposition, which would redefine Africa's standing in the world and offer better lasting solutions to crises on the continent and globally. Thank you very much. <laughs>